morning we come to Psalm 138. So if you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 138. And I'll um, read the entire Psalm, Psalm 138. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. A Psalm of David. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. And in the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet He regards the lowly, but the proud He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God, Heavenly Father, we... I do praise you and thank you for the great gift that you have given to us in your word. That it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. That in your word we find instruction for our lives. We find what we need to know concerning you and about you and about us and the duty that you require of us. We find strength and comfort. And so as we come to this psalm this morning, we ask, Father, that you would truly pour out your Spirit upon us, that your Spirit would go forth with your Word, and that as it goes forth, it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's the trouble that you're currently facing in your lives? What's been recently the source of your pain or suffering, your heartache, fear, doubts, or distress? What is it that's been keeping you awake at night or has been driving you to your knees in prayer? Some may be facing physical pain or sickness or some kind of bodily affliction, either dealing with that themselves or caring for a loved one who is suffering in such a way. Perhaps you're anxious and fearful about everything that's going on in our nation and in the world. Wars and violence, increasing godlessness and the growing threat, the very real growing threat of of persecution. Maybe you're concerned about paying your bills 
providing for your family. And because of just the inflation and this impending economic collapse. Maybe there's disturbances that are closer to home. Strained relationships in your marriage or with your children or with your parents. Concern for, for prodigal children and, and other loved ones. Indeed, we know that some of you have been, have been uh, rattled recently by grief and sorrow over the loss of a dear loved one. Or maybe the trouble you're facing is more spiritual in nature. Maybe you're struggling with doubts. Doubts about your faith and, and what you believe. Or maybe you're just growing weary with the, da- the daily battles against sin and temptation. Perhaps giving in to sin more than you're gaining victory over sin in your lives. Maybe it's a particular besetting sin that you can't quite shake. Or maybe you're just overwhelmed with the idols of pride and pleasures and possessions which our society pursues above all things. What is it that troubles you this morning? Now surely it's possible that some may currently be trouble free. And that's good. Praise the Lord. Count it a great blessing and enjoy it while it lasts. Because we know the reality, the reality of being sinners, surrounded by sinners, living in a fallen and sinful world, is that trouble is never too far away. Sometimes it's just around the corner. And so, beloved of God, whatever your trouble is this morning, I want you to know that you are not alone. the great comfort that we find in Psalm 138 this morning is that even in the midst of great overwhelming trouble we can have confidence and hope such that we can even break out in praise and thanksgiving to our God in the very heat of trouble at the height of when things are the worst because of who our God is and what He's done for us, and what He's promised to do. As we look at this psalm, the ancient inscription tells us that it was David who wrote this psalm. And this is actually the first of eight psalms now, uh, consecutive psalms, and showing us that this is uh, David's last collection of psalms in, in the Psalter. And though we're not given any information about the setting, the setting of the psalm, and why David wrote this, but what we can glean from the psalm itself is that it was likely at a time when David was in trouble and when he was also at a distance from Jerusalem, as we see there in verse 2, that he says, I will worship toward your holy temple rather than I will worship in your temple. Right? So he's not in Jerusalem for whatever reason. And most likely it was when David was fleeing from King Saul as as David is mindful of God's plan and purpose as we see in verse 8 that the Lord would one day set David upon the throne in Jerusalem. That was his promise to David. And he knows and trusts that the Lord will bring that about. 
And then given the theme of David praising and giving thanks to God for deliverance in the past, as a foundation for his hope and deliverance in the present, this period of flight from Saul fits very well. Because we know that twice David was very close to being captured by Saul, though at the time Saul was completely unaware of just how close David was. He was in hot pursuit, and there were at least two occasions where he was very close, and yet the Lord delivered David. In fact, David had the opportunity both times to slay Saul, but he refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, and he refused to seize the crown through his own schemes. He would rather uh, wait and trust in God's plan and perfect timing. And it was on the second of these occasions when David was hiding in the wilderness of Ziph, that the, he snuck into Saul's camp at night. And as Saul lie there sleeping, he, David took Saul's spear and his water jug, which were right there by Saul's head. And then later the next morning, David cried out from a distance, saying to Saul in 1 Samuel 26, Why does my Lord pursue, uh, thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stored you up against, stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. And after this, we read that Saul relented from pursuing David, at least for the time. And then he returned to Jerusalem. But David was still left outside the fellowship of the holy city, outside the land of Israel. He was a a refugee, uncertain if Saul would, would come after him again. And still wrestling with these troubling thoughts, David ponders in 1 Samuel 27, the first verse, he says, Now I, will, I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. And so he was considering that sooner or later Saul's going to come and get him. But then he continues, There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. And so we see here that David had been delivered. He had been delivered from the hand of Saul. Saul went home, and yet his trouble continued as he awaited the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose. And so indeed, this situation fits well with what we discover here in Psalm 138. But David, even though he's in trouble, is still very much thankful for the deliverance granted to him by the Lord. And so instead of of dwelling on the trouble and uncertainty of the future, he instead offers up wholehearted praise and thanks to the Lord. I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods. I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. Now, there are several things to note regarding David's manner of praise here. First, the the word praise is used in the first half of verse 1, and then again in verse 2, and then once more in verse 4. This isn't the usual word for praise, which is, we get our word hallelujah. Hallelujah. David's not singing hallelujah here. 
<clears throat> but the word that's used here indicates that a giving of thanks by confessing or acknowledging. And so when we give thanks to God, we're acknowledging Him and what He's done for us. Mindful that we're thankful for uh, is nothing of ourselves. That it's not our own doing. It's not our own works, our own wisdom, power, might, or strength. It's all from the Lord. Because we're lost without Him. And He came and rescued us and delivered us when we were weak and helpless. And so it's not a praise of self, but a praise of thanksgiving directed toward the Lord. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us. We have much to be thankful for. And so our worship and our prayers should always be filled with thanksgiving to God, acknowledging Him as, as Paul contends in Colossians 4, continuing earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should mark our time of worship and prayer. And secondly, note that David praises and gives thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. Now the Jews considered the heart to be the center of the human will, emotions, feelings, and desires. Thus wholehearted praise and thanksgiving really consumes the whole person. It's every fiber of your being that's giving thanks to the Lord. It's not a stone-cold dead heart, for we know such a heart can't give praise or thanks at all. It, it does nothing but brings forth rot and decay. Nor is it a divided, hypocritical heart that says one thing outwardly and yet inwardly is very different. Or a heart divided between the desires of the flesh and the seeking the glory of God. Or a heart divided between inward pride and an outward display of humility and righteousness. No, it's a whole heart. Fully submitted to the will and purpose of God as it relies on the all-sufficient grace of God to endure whatever may come. A whole heart acknowledges with Paul in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and do for His good pleasure. That's the submissive whole heart giving thanks to God. Thirdly, David makes this offering of praise and thanksgiving very publicly as, as a witness before others, even before the gods. Little g, gods, I will sing praises to you. Now this seems a bit strange and has led to a division among commentators about what is meant here. But again, if we're thinking about the setting where David found himself in 1 Samuel 26 and 27... Well, we're reminded that those driving David from Israel were taunting and tempting him to, to go and serve other gods. And indeed, he ended up going into the land of the Philistines, the sworn enemies of the Israelites. And that's where he dwelt for a long time. But during this time of exile, though David sought to faithfully serve the Philistine leaders... He never once bowed the knee nor gave reverence to the false idol gods of the Philistines. Instead, he continued to witness before them of the power and the glory of the one true living God, the Lord God of Israel. 
David never wavered in his commitment to the Lord. And so this then explains the first part of verse 2 where he says, I will worship toward your holy temple. <clears throat> Remember that the place of worship for the Jews was in Jerusalem, in the tabernacle of the Lord. And so even though David's in a foreign land, he's going to turn toward Jerusalem when he offers his prayer and his worship to God. But he does so not because of the city or even because of the building of the tabernacle itself, but because Jerusalem and in the tabernacle is where the Lord chose to place his name and where he symbolically dwelled in the midst of his people above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so David's commitment and devotion to the Lord, even during great trouble, will become a witness to those around him to the glory of God. Now what a great reminder for us that in the midst of our own trouble and trials, to be so focused on giving all praise and thanks to God as a witness to those around us. And truly people will wonder as they see this, as they see us giving us giving praise and thanks to, to God in the midst of our trials, they'll wonder, why, look, why aren't you complaining? Why, why aren't you angry and, and bitter about what's going on? Why aren't you lashing out? Why aren't you just giving up? Instead, you're, you're filled with gratitude and you're expressing a joy and confidence in the midst of all these difficulties. How can you do it? What's the reason for the hope that's in you? And beloved of God, it's when they ask that question that Peter tells us that we ought to then always be ready to give a response. Always be ready to tell of the wonders of God's grace in our lives through Jesus Christ. So that even when we're going through these times of difficulty and trouble, just our very manner of, of giving thanks and still praising our God can be a great witness to others. Now in case we may wonder, well, what are the reasons that we have to give thanks and praise to God, even in the midst of our troubles? Well, David offers several reasons that fuel his thank offering of wholehearted praise. First, he gives thanks for the glorious attributes and perfections of God. Specifically, God's loving kindness and truth in verse 2. Now, the loving kindness of God is God's covenant love. It's His mercy and, and His everlasting grace, as it often is translated in, in those different ways. It's the undeserved favor that God has bestowed upon an undeserving people. Upon those whom He chose and established to be His own special people, to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And truly, David has benefited from this loving kindness, not only as a descendant of Abraham, with whom God first made that covenant promise, but even personally, God has shown great mercy and grace to David. David was just an unknown shepherd boy out in the middle of the pasture, pastures, uh, shepherding sheep. And yet the Lord chose him and called the prophet Samuel to anoint him to be the next king of Israel. 
And God gave David favor in the sight of men, even initially favor in the sight of King Saul, who was the present king of the time. The Lord blessed David with courage, strength, and wisdom, and gave him great victories and and battle over the the giant Goliath and, and over the Philistines and many other enemies. David was mighty. Because the Lord was with him and the Lord was gracious toward him. Again, not because he was anything unspecial. He was undeserving. And yet God made him great. Along with this loving kindness is God's attribute of truth. Not only is he alone the one true living God, but he speaks and acts according to perfect truth and righteousness. What God does is true, it's reliable and and trustworthy. And again, David has learned from past experiences that the Lord doesn't disappoint. He's always true and faithful. That God is truth also means that His word is true and His law is just. His commandments are for our good and, and for His glory. They certainly will not lead us astray. They're not burdensome. Well, this then leads to the next reason David and even we ourselves have to give thanks and praise to God. In verse 2, For you have magnified your word above all your name. You see, God has revealed Himself through His works, through creation and salvation. But He's most especially revealed Himself through His word. And this is a great reason to give thanks. That we serve a God who's revealed Himself. A God that we can actually know. But as the Lord has been working in and through His life, David stands amazed that all he's known so far about God, from His name uh, to His works and His Word, all this seems very minor and insignificant compared to how God has now revealed Himself through the fulfillment of His promises and being true to His Word. Indeed, the very fact that David is still alive and that he hasn't fallen prey to Saul's hand is a testimony of the wonders of God's promise made to David that he would one day be king. And so, beloved of God, as we see God fulfilling His promises We see God fulfilling His promises to us, even in our own lives. The promise that He's mindful of us, that He'll provide for us, that He will guide and protect us, that He'll forgive us of our sins, that He'll sustain us with His grace through various trials and hardship. The promise that He will never leave us nor forsake us. As we see all these promises fulfilled in our own lives, and the lives of God's people around us, we ought to give thanks and true praise to our God. And this then leads to the third reason we have have to give thanks, and that is God has been faithful to answer prayer. Verse 3, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold and with strength in my soul. On numerous occasions in the past, David found himself in trouble. 
And he's cried out to the Lord for help and deliverance. And the Lord has been faithful to answer and to deliver him. And this stirs within him a a boldness and, and a great strength of soul. Because as he's praying out now to God, he has more confidence and boldness that God will still yet hear his prayer. Not only that he will press on in the midst of trouble and trials, but that he would be bold in his witness for the glory of God. Indeed, David becomes so enraptured with praise and and thanksgiving to the Lord that he's then moved by the Spirit to actually prophesy and, and sing of a time when all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues will praise to the Lord God of Israel. Verses 4 and 5, All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Great kings of the earth will hear the words of the Lord. They'll hear of of God's wisdom, His law, His precepts and commands. They'll hear of the covenant promises that He's made to His people, and they'll marvel at it. They'll be compelled to give praise to God. They'll hear the ways of the Lord, that He is a, a mighty God, almighty in power and glory, and that surely He is above all gods and idols. Indeed, that He alone is the one true living God. And not only will they hear of His power and might, but they'll also hear of His abounding grace and mercy toward the undeserving. Verse 6, Though the Lord is on high, yet He regards the lowly, but the proud He knows from afar. They'll hear of this great, powerful God who sits in the heavens, and yet He is so mindful of the lowly creature, the poor and the humble, that He pours out His his mercy and His compassion upon them, even though they don't deserve it. He will favor the lowly with His grace. But the proud and the mighty ones He shuns, counting them as nothing, which truly runs counter to all human knowledge and wisdom. That this is unfathomable. How can this be? Shouldn't the strong ones be recognized? No, the God of Israel pours out His grace and mercy upon the weak. Because the weak then are made strong in Him as He guards and protects them. And so these rulers will hear of these things. They'll hear of the God of Israel and they'll bow down to worship the Lord God. But how will they hear these things? Because there will be witnesses declaring these things with David now leading the way. David and all those who call in the name of the Lord in faith will bear witness by praising and giving thanks to the Lord for the marvelous things that He's done. And this, not just when things are going well, but even when things are not going well, when they're in trouble, they will still praise the Lord and give thanks to Him. We see the fulfillment of this prophecy beginning to come about, especially in the lifetime of David's son Solomon. 
Many heard of, of the glory of the God of Israel, and they came and they praised the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we read of the Queen of Sheba. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And so she traveled a long way because she heard these great things about the God of Israel and about the wisdom that He had given the King of Israel. And then after witnessing the wisdom of Solomon, after seeing the splendor of his palace and the temple and how the Lord had richly blessed him, and see in verse 5 that, that there was no spirit in her. She was so overcome with amazement, she didn't know what to do. It was almost like she, she passed out. But then she praised the Lord, saying in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore He made you king to do justice and righteousness. She heard these great things, and she came and she witnessed them, and she gave praise to God. But this is just the beginning of the fulfillment, for as we read Psalm 138 verses 4-6, through we can't help but look much further ahead to the coming of the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, even Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh and He ushered in the glory of the kingdom of God. And, and again, people marveled at His power, His mercy, His compassion as people were healed of, of various sicknesses and diseases that the, the lame walked and the blind were given sight and the, the deaf were able to hear. Demons and evil spirits were cast out. Even the wind and the waves obeyed His command. Many saw these things and they were amazed and became witnesses to the glory of God as they also gave praise and thanks to Him. And now as the good news of the Gospel, which Christ accomplished, continues to go forth throughout all the world, well, the great things that the Lord has done through Christ, even His sovereign power and might, His mercy and compassion are declared and people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are coming to know the one true living God through faith in Jesus. They too are coming to to praise and give thanks to His holy name. But the greatest fulfillment of these verses is still yet to come. At the end of the age when Jesus returns in power and glory to usher in the fullness of His kingdom that time all nations will be subjected before Him. All kings, presidents, and rulers of the earth, all people everywhere will see Him in His power and glory. And those who haven't yet humbled themselves in faith and who haven't acknowledged Him in this life will at that time be compelled to praise and honor Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. And so David in the Spirit sees this wondrous time coming and he he greatly anticipates it. But then suddenly, from this this great height of, of future praise and glory bestowed upon the Lord, David, he comes back down to the reality of his current troubles and distress. Verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble. Again, David is, is still in trouble. For now, 
he's been spared. Saul went back to Jerusalem. But David is still in exile. And he's surrounded by those who were once his enemies. And he'll seek refuge in their midst. But he's separated from his family, from his friends, from his homeland. And most of all, he's separated from the presence of the Lord there in the tabernacle. He's separated from the true worship of God. He's been diligently praising and giving thanks to God. And yet, he's still in trouble. Even as we may find ourselves. Brothers and sisters, trouble surrounds us. We're sinners, surrounded by sinners, living in a fallen and sinful world. Trouble lies around every corner. And Satan, our great enemy, is relentless. And, and we must be aware that he will use that trouble. He'll, he's going to use that sickness. He's going to use that grief. He's going to use that stress. He's going to use that broken relationship. And he's going to use even that sin that dwells in our own hearts. Satan's going to use it. Whatever trouble it is, we find ourselves in the midst of. Satan will use it to assault us and seek to bring us down to destruction. And so we must be always on guard. But instead of wallowing in self-pity or cowering in fear, we must grab hold and faith to what we know to be true. What our great God and Savior has revealed to us. Even as we see here, that David is still in the midst of trouble. The very exercise of, of remembering all that he has to be thankful for. The many reasons he has to praise the Lord have now stirred with him, within him not despair, but a confident assurance. A great booming assurance in God's faithfulness to His promises. The end of verse 7, You will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. There's no doubt or dismay in David's words here. He's assured of God's wonderful promises. Note here that we're assured that in the midst of trouble, we're not alone. That our Lord and Good Shepherd is with us, leading and guiding us, even through the dark valley of the shadow of death. He's with us and He will never, ever forsake us. And secondly, we're assured that He who is with us will revive and strengthen us. God, each and every day, our Lord is merciful and gracious to renew for us His all-sufficient grace to help us and sustain us and strengthen us for whatever troubles we may face that day. Every day, His grace is renewed. And so as you rest in His grace and strength, you will endure the present distress, whatever it is. And thirdly, not only will He give us the grace to endure, but He'll bring salvation and deliverance from our enemies at just the right time. The perfect time that He's appointed. Whether this deliverance comes in this life or it may come at the time of death, but we are assured that it will come. It's certain and sure. And David is certain of these things because ultimately he acknowledges that these promises of God made to his people, even to us through faith in Jesus, these promises are rooted and grounded in the very character and the being of God. 
So that David declares in verse 8, The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. See, God's mercy, His loving kindness and covenant faithfulness never fail because it is as He is. Perfect and eternal, never failing. Beloved of God, when your hope and assurance is in the perfect and eternal God who abounds in grace and mercy, you can be assured that in the midst of trouble, you do have help. For the Lord is working out His plan and purpose, even using your troubles and trials to form and fashion you into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Paul declares in Philippians 1 verse 6, Be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. This we know to be true. But note David's final plea here at the end of verse 8. Do not forsake the works of your hands. And so based on all that David has said in this psalm, the truth that he's borne witness to, the, the prophetic glimpse of future glory, and the bold assurance and confidence in the Lord to save and deliver, what are we to understand by these final words? Well, simply this. Beloved of God, in the midst of trouble, remember God's power and might. Remember His grace and mercy that abounds toward the undeserving. Remember His perfect character. Remember how He's faithfully answered your prayers and brought you help in your time of need in the past. Look forward to that time of future glory where you'll stand forever in His glorious presence for, with, where there's fullness of joy. Remember the great things the Lord has done. And trust Him. Trust Him to provide help and deliverance. Trust Him to provide grace to endure whatever your trouble may be. Trust Him and wait on the unfolding of His perfect plan and purpose for you. Knowing that it is the best plan for your good and His glory. Trust Him. Trust Him and remind Him that you are a work of His hands. That you are still not yet perfect. That you're not perfectly Christ-like. Pray then that He will continue that work and He will bring it to completion. And as you pray, you will know, even with your own whole heart, that He most certainly will bring it to completion to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for the great comfort and confidence that You give to us. And yes, we acknowledge that we are in the midst of trouble. Many have troubles, some known and some unknown. But in those troubles, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace and strength to endure. That we remember your kindnesses and your mercies. And the glorious perfection of your character. 
your goodness, your faithfulness, your truth. That as we remember these things, that we too would be built up in great confidence. Even as we look forward to a time when we'll be free from all this trouble, free from uh, sin and pain and suffering and death, that even tears will be wiped away. When all nations, all people, will acknowledge you as King of kings and Lord of lords. As we think of these things, Lord, we pray that you would Give us that boldness and confidence to further endure. And that even through the difficult trouble that we may be going through, that you have your purpose in that. That it's not in vain. It's not just something random happening to us, but it's an opportunity for your spirit to work in us and to chip away the pride and selfishness to chip away at our sin, to form and fashion us more and more into the perfect likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that the work you have begun in us will be brought to completion. And we pray that you would especially give us the grace as you continue that work in our hearts and our lives, even now, even in the midst of trouble. We ask, Father, that your spirit would impress these truths upon our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.